HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This episode is presented by Shaxbury Cider. Hey, this is Hannah, HRN's program manager. It's HRN's 10th anniversary and now our summer fun drive. So show your support for independent, revolutionary, entertaining food radio by becoming a monthly recurring donor. HRN is powered by a passionate community of thoughtful eaters, and we need each and every one of you to show your support so that we can keep bringing you your favorite food podcasts. It takes a village, and every dollar donated, every listener tuning in is essential to our continued success. So set up a donation for... $10 every month. You'll show us that you want to be a part of a bright future for HRN. And you'll get one of our brand new limited edition Pizza Pocket t-shirts. So snag your new favorite tea and show us some love, all for the price of about two fancy lattes each month. Go to heritageradionetwork.org slash donate today. And thank you. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll load. Knows that country music's gonna save your soul. The in them rhythm and blues that sound. It's gonna get you sun in the air. I'm Laura Newman, and I own Queen's Park, which is a classic cocktail bar in Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah. Uh, tell me about uh, what got you to Queen's Park. How did you start in the business? So I started in the business by working for a tequila company um, based in New York, and I did. Sorry. Keep going. Okay. Um, I worked for a tequila company based in New York. Uh, It's called Tanteo Tequila. If you're familiar with it, they are uh, actually very successful because their eventual goal was to get into sort of larger national accounts, which they did, and they're doing great. Um, I ran their office, but I also kind of part-time ran their office bar, and I realized that that was my favorite part of the entire job and I had to leave them because I started going to school for hospitality management but I had time to work part-time and I found this Craigslist ad about this thing called De Rossi Global. I'd never heard of it before. I thought it was like maybe a shipping company but it said something about popular bars and I knew that's what I wanted to do and I knew that I was really good at office type stuff and so I answered this ad. I just showed up to this um, like basically a closet with a storefront on 6th Street and it turned out that this group owns a ton of different bars and restaurants, including Amore Margo. And I started in the back office there and just kind of, you know, attrition happens in restaurants and in back offices of restaurants. And all of a sudden I was managing and then bartending at and then doing literally everything at almost every single bar they owned at the time. And 
just kind of took off from there. And all this while you were still going to school for hospitality management? For the first year and a half I was there, yeah. I don't know if you knew that. Yeah, no, I, I, yeah. Yeah, I didn't know that, mm -hmm. actually. I remember you being in the office, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, what, I mean, how serendipitous. So so then, so you worked in this, at the Tonteo Bar, was that your first bar? Yeah, that was the first bar I'd ever worked at, besides the one I had in my dorm room in college. Of course, after I was 21. Uh, of course, and drinking responsibly all the of way. Always. Um, so, which was the first bar in Durasi that you stood behind? The first one I stood behind was the Bourgeois Pig, which was a wine bar on uh, 7th Street, East 7th, between 1st and A, and for listeners who are not familiar with it, it was uh, it represented a really unique aspect of New York City liquor law, which was that we were less than 150 feet door to door, um, and door to door is kind of at the discretion of city officials what door that may be, uh, from a Catholic church, which meant that we could not serve distilled spirits, only uh, aromatized wines. We could sell like lightly fortified stuff, like sherry was okay randomly, even though that's fortified, but that's another discussion for another day. So. When other people were learning how to make Old Fashions or Negronis or, I don't know, Long Island iced teas and Cosmos, I was learning how to make bamboos and Adonises and Coronations and these, like, fortified wine-based classic cocktails. Yeah, you were making all low ABV wine and beer mm -hmm. cocktails too, right? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And serving fondue. And fondue. <laughs> so much fondue. I'm great at holding fondue platters. I can hold, like, six fondue pots still. It's really exciting. Um, and so, same again, you're now working in an office, but you're, at the, you're behind a bar, and the yeah. bar is your favorite part. Yeah, and the bar is my favorite part, and I think somehow I was able to convince Robbie, because at first he was like, well, I'll let you behind this bar, but you have to stay in the office, because I was doing graphic design for all of the bars, I was doing payroll for all the bars, I was, Robbie would be like, we need someone to spray paint uh, 37 mirrors by the end of today on 6th Street and we don't have the mirrors and we don't have spray paint but can you make this happen and so I would go right. schlep around Manhattan getting all these things and then people on East, East 6th whom I still recognize even now like I know everyone that lives or still lives on that block from when I was there uh, you know they'd kind of be like oh it's a crazy girl doing those things for this guy and anyways I managed to somehow convince him that it was I would you know it was worth keeping me on in some capacity if I was just at his bars and restaurants. So I transitioned out of the office and I just, just did the bars. Outstanding. Uh, and then you moved on pretty rapidly. You went to a bunch of the Durasi bars, but then you went to some other bars in yeah, New York City. I did. Um, gosh, uh, Bacchanal. Bacchanal, Bacchanal with Narn Young. Young. <laughs> um, Luis Hernandez. Um, I did fine dining. I worked at Dover, RIP. That was a great restaurant. It and really was, It yeah. was the uh, Battersby Sister restaurant. Um, kind of blinking at <laughs> anything else. I mean, really, I stayed within the Durasi family, or if I tried to leave the orbit, I'd kind of get sucked, sucked back, back, in. back in. Yeah, but I mean, this, this also happened over a really pretty rapid amount of time. You, like, you, yeah. you burst onto the scene pretty quickly. Um, I think a lot of people think that, but if you think back, like, I started working for Ravi, I mean, I started working for him almost 10 years ago at this point. Yeah. And I think a lot of people just didn't, you know, um, maybe take people who worked at a place like the Bourgeois Pig seriously. That's, that's kind of true, although some great people worked there. Yeah. Frank Cisneros mm -hmm. worked over there, mm -hmm. Jane yeah, Danger. Yeah, Frank was there, Jane was there. Um, uh, was it Aaron Reese was there too? Yeah. Huh? yeah, it was a lot of really great bartenders started there. Um, and I think... A lot of people are like, you know, after I first did World Class, people are like, wow, you, you had this great showing at World Class. Where'd you come from? And I was like, I've been here. I've been bartending. Yeah. But, you know, it's, 
I think sometimes that's nice though, you know, sometimes it's nice to surprise people rather than taking the obvious route of starting maybe as like a bar back at Death & Co and working your way up there. I just kind of took a more circuitous route. Yeah, but it also afforded you an opportunity to get a, a, a lot of varied experience. Yes, that is true. I have worked in a lot of different situations, and yeah. especially compared to other people. Dave's is so neighborhood pub. It's when it opened, it used to have like lines literally around the block because there were no other bars in the city. Um, and now it's a little more nostalgic, but it's still a great bar. They have uh, 29 beers on draft and about 150 to 170, depending on the day of the week, uh, package beers. Uh, really big whiskey selection, really big like everything selection um, because not only do they have this really like serious whiskey selection, but they also carry like every flavor of Stoli because the idea is it's a neighborhood bar. It really appeals to a lot of different people. So you need to be able to speak to someone about, you know, Sazerac allocated whiskey, but you also need to be able to remember that, um, you know, when Buck comes in, he wants to get a high life immediately without being asked what he wants. And then he's probably going to want chilled Stoli blueberry with Sprite. Wow. (laughs) Buck is my kind of guy. Buck's great. Um, so you were crushing it at this crazy dive bar. Uh, tell me about St. Patrick's Day at Dave's. So the last St. <laughs> Patrick's, Patrick's Day, Day in Birmingham. So in Birmingham, it's a huge deal. There's a parade. There are. Um, it's just a. I mean, I'm saying there's a parade. Like yeah, New York has a parade too, but it's like it's a really, really big deal. Um, it's just this really over the top, taken extremely seriously celebration. Um, and with Dave's. Uh, I should mention the pricing at Dave's is a little different than, say, New York City, for example. The first time I ever worked a shift there, I didn't check the prices, and someone asked me how much a High Life was, and I said $8, and they were like, what? And I was like, I don't know, 7 And they were like, what? Like, what the hell happened? And I was like, I, d- I didn't understand what they were saying. High Life's are $2 there. Or two if you're industry, three for the public. Um, and two during happy hour, I think it is. Uh, and so the prices are just always very low, and that was something they prided themselves on. My now boyfriend and business partner... As the general manager there, that was a big thing for him was he would start these like price wars with other bars. And so on St. Patrick's Day, the most recent one that I worked, the bar opened at 10 a.m. and there was a line outside the bar. I remember when I got in, I got in at like 10.05 and the bar was full. And I worked until 6 p.m. And then they stayed open until 1 a.m., but they really just emptied out at midnight. So from 10 a.m. to midnight, they did $65,000 in sales. And the most expensive thing that was like on our St. Patrick's Day menu were um, Tullamore Dew Irish Car Bombs. Not a fan of that phrase, but anyways, uh, Tillamore Dew Irish Car Bombs for $6? $8? And we were doing $3 beers, and uh, I've never worked a bar situation like that in my life. It was out of control. That's unbelievable. I mean, it was very under control, actually, but it was just the amount of volume we were doing was out of control. It was great. It was plastic cups. Like, we didn't have time for glass, and and then I I was also working at this fine dining restaurant. I was doing five days a week there, too, and so I remember I... I was like, all right, it's six o'clock. I gotta go because I've been at six thirty. So I go into work and I'm like, I'm like literally like changing in like the dish pit, like putting, like taking off this like green stained T-shirt and like putting on, you know, like a floral blouse. And I walk out and you know some guests come in. I'm like, welcome, you know, so happy to have you here at High Fish Club. Like, let me set you up. We have a little gift coming from the kitchen. And they like look down at my hands and I look down at the same time. I notice them looking down. My hands are like bright green, like stained from this green beer. And I'm just like. 
It's been an interesting day. Yeah. Excuse me. Happy St. Patrick's <laughs> Day. Welcome to the restaurant. Yeah. Um, that's outstanding. So then you and Mud, that's who yes. we're talking about, uh, your, your business partner now. Um, life former, partner. Former boss and, and, yeah, life partner as well. You and Mud uh, decided, to screw open. this, let's open our own joint. Yeah. I think, uh, I remember before that St. Patrick's Day, it was like so five. It was, mud, it was mud that drew you to Birmingham. Yes. I tell people I got lost driving to Miami and that there's a documentary about my life called My Cousin Vinny that they should check out. Yeah, right. Joke always hits. My my staff are always like, Mom, not again. <laughs> tell that joke like five times a night. But um, yeah, he convinced me to move there. And actually, originally we were, I wasn't going to move there permanently though. He was like, why don't you just come here and use Birmingham as a base to visit other cities and we'll decide where we want to open a bar. I'll sell the house. We'll move there and we'll open this place. And I was like, great. So I was going on all these little trips around Birmingham, or excuse me, around the American South generally, but other parts of the country too. And I would come back to Birmingham and I'd be like, man, I really miss Birmingham. And then like all the stuff was happening with Birmingham. These major banks moved their regional or national headquarters there. Um, Food and Wine moved their headquarters there at the James Beard Awards in 2018. Um, best restaurant in America, best pastry chef in America. We're both in Birmingham. There were other nominations in Birmingham that made long list for James Beard. Um, just there's this really it's a really interesting zeitgeist that it's there right now and I wanted to be a part of that and also you know you you meet these people who are like like Ravi for example he took a neighborhood that there were really no cocktail bars in to speak of and he built an empire by getting these really cheap leases at the bourgeois pig was five grand a month right. and we would make that money in a Friday right. we'd make that on a Wednesday and it was you know, I'd always wanted to be someone like that and not have to, you know, break my back and go broke affording some shitty little spot in New York because that was the only thing I could afford. Right. So the the advantages of a smaller market is what you're describing, right? Yeah. Um, so you decided to open Queen's Park. Talk about Queen's Park. It's a Queen's great, Park it's is... Queen's Park Swizzle is a great drink. One of my favorites. I think I've said it on the show before well. that I am a sucker for a Swizzle. If I'm at a bar and I see one go by, I must have. Yeah. Right? Absolutely. I, I generally like swizzle, to sample them. QPS. Especially QPS, yeah. And it's funny, it's now people like to send them to me. I've, I've been in New York for a few days, and a few uh, lovely bars and restaurants have uh, sent me gifts of Queen Park Swizzles, Queen's Park Swizzles, I guess, to, to give my seal of approval to or to investigate. They've all been lovely. But um, we're a classic cocktail bar. Uh, we have a menu of 60 some odd drinks uh 50 of them are classics uh we have a few house drinks that number always changes so i'm not going to say it but usually like five to seven house drinks and then we also have uh five house na cocktails and then three to five um large format drinks as well so it sounds really ambitious but really classic cocktails they're classics because you don't need that much stuff to make them so really what's not in my opinion, an insane-looking well can put out a huge menu of cocktails. Um, it's a really pretty space. It's inspired by the original Queen's Park Hotel, which the Queen's Park Swizzle is named after, which sadly no longer exists, but was in Trinidad in a neighborhood called Port of Spain. Um, and it, I think it's a really pretty space. I was very inspired by the work that Robbie did and the work that I did helping him design some of his spaces. Uh, hopefully it makes people feel like they're drinking maybe in a swanky hotel in the Caribbean, but at the same time they can get, you know, Miller High Life Pony and a shot of whiskey. Or a classic cocktail. What Talk to me real about quick it? about those ponies. I know there's a story there. Yes, there is a story. The story is that there were not ponies in Birmingham before, or really in Alabama, before I moved there. Um, I knew I wanted ponies. I wanted them real bad. I always wanted a pony as a kid, and as an adult I wanted ponies too. And so 
I started reaching out to Miller Coors about nine months before we opened, and up with about a month to go, they were like, yeah, this just isn't going to happen. I don't know. And it's like they were – Miller Coors has a presence in the state. I was under the impression they were already in the state, so maybe I was a little overzealous in how angry I got about this. They apparently weren't in the state, but I thought they were, but they just weren't going north of Montgomery with them. Birmingham is north, like the northern part of the state. And I – became very, very frustrated, and I started this, like, multi-front press to contact Miller Coors and to, like, tell other people how angry I was and get them to tell Miller Coors, and it turned into this big social media push, yeah, and finally they, Miller Coors National reached out to me on uh, Facebook, and, you know, I, I was like, hey, like, my name's Lauren, I sent them this, like, you know, like, really long message about how much work I'd done and how I tried to get ponies and I couldn't and it was very unfair and all I wanted was a pony for Christmas and if they could please help me out that'd be great and I brought ponies to Birmingham and now every bar that wants ponies can have them uh we have lots of them every other beer we have is something that's local but it's the one macro brew we carry and they're delicious and I think seven ounces is just the amount that I want when it comes to a high life uh yeah I mean I, I think I call them think drinks I'll drink a pony while I'm looking at the menu. Exactly. We do that a lot. You know, and we've encouraged the staff actually to upsell it like that. You know, like, hey, I mean, do you need a pony or a daiquiri while well, you check out our long, very detailed list? Yeah, exactly. you got a lengthy menu. Mm-hmm. You want to give them something yeah. to do while they read it. Yeah. Or we'll do, we do um, a daily punch as well. And we'll do, hey, do you want like a little shot of this punch? And I sometimes we'll just give those out too. But we'll offer people, you know, like a small serving of something just while they kind of hang out and take in everything there is to take in. Yeah. But the menu, I think, is pretty digestible. Like, you can, you can go as detailed with it as you want. Um, it does include a lot of copy, but the most important and the largest copy is up top, where it's, like, the ingredients and the name. And then, depending on how into it you want to get, you can go all the way down to We list the, um, the earliest written source that we've been able to find for each cocktail. And I spend a huge amount of time on this because I want to be very correct on this. So we spend a lot of time making sure our menu is as factually correct as possible and it has a lot of really cool information and you know we're the first classic cocktail bar in the city so in some ways we are teaching people how to drink and we're teaching people what these drinks are so all eyes are on you and yeah so i want it to be an educational experience for our guests as well yeah that's amazing um talk about how you started uh queens park uh you you did miracle yes Talk about what Miracle is and talk about how how it went for you. So Miracle is a uh, Christmas-themed, or really holiday-themed, but more Christmas-themed pop-up bar experience that was started by Greg Bohm, who also owns Cocktail Kingdom. Uh, When he opened his bar Mace in uh, Alphabet City, he realized that it wasn't going to be ready because of some permit issues that were happening, but it... Not that the space wouldn't be ready, but his vision for Mace could not be ready. And his mother suggested doing a Christmas-themed bar because, in her words, everyone loves Christmas. And he thought about it. His mother, who's Jewish, by the way. Yes, his Jewish mother, (laughs) yes, recommended a Christmas bar because everyone loves Christmas. And so he kind of threw together just, you know, like five grand worth of dollar store Christmas decorations and made this Christmas menu. This episode is brought to you by Shaxbury Cider, who believe cider can be daring, complex, and eminently drinkable. Located in Vergennes, Vermont, Shaxbury make a broad offering of ciders, from the bright and fruity rosé to inventive, small-batch wild apple fermentation. Each fall, Shaxbury takes to the hills of Vermont to forage for the wild and forgotten fruit that make up their lost apple project. Shaxbury, producer of the first American-made Petnat Cider, 
continues to experiment every year with limited edition ciders designed to spotlight locally foraged fruit. To learn more, visit Shaxbury.com or follow them on Instagram at Shaxbury. It can be a little hard to kind of create your own bar's identity when people, you know, people are like, oh, so like you're just going to like, like you're, what, you got a temporary lease? That's so cool to do this. And I was like, yeah, temporary lease on like all this brand new bar equipment. Yeah, super weird how that happened. Um, So I think a lot of people were confused about whether or not we existed or people, you know, during Miracle, you have 80 people lined up and you have a lot of, it's just a lot that goes into it. So we didn't really open the floodgates. We controlled it a little bit. And some people got very upset about that. And people now will be like, oh, I never come in because I know you, you have to have a seat. And it's like, no, we don't do that at QP. We do that at Miracle when, again, there's like a, like a horde trying to get into your bar and like destroy everything and steal all your glassware. Like, yeah, we, we limit it then. But um, it's at the same time, it's a great... Uh, great boost fiscally really pads sure. your bank account the out bottom line um, really jumped up yeah it did we're actually we're gonna be paid off in a year so that feels really good um because of miracle giving you such yeah, a great definitely head start. Yeah. definitely um and, and you're intent on doing miracle again we are uh we're actually signed up also to do sip and santa at a yet undisclosed location Sip and Santa is their miracle miracle sister it is a tiki christmas themed pop-up bar same same deal like new uh thanksgiving to new year's and usually it's not done it's only done in places that already have a miracle and it's kind of like if you can handle miracle you can also handle sip and santa and then they bestowed upon you the blessing that you can handle <laughs> the it. blessing Cause yeah because you, you ran out of everything on night one <laughs> we ended up i mean we had to hire a full-time prep person separately i mean our bar staff all does prep shifts, but we had to hire a separate full-time prep person in addition to that because we were just going through stuff so much. And she was literally, we would open at four and she would get in at five and then she was there until 2 a.m. every day. And she'd be making, you know, like like 45 quarts of eggnog at a time and we would sell that in two days. Wow. <laughs> Crazy. It's great. Um, let's talk about your um, business in general, your business savvy. How does it feel to have jumped from, you know, being in the back offices to being behind the bar to now being the owner and and talk about how how you're I don't know how you're treating and educating your staff I yeah. know you've done some really cool things yeah um I think it I think my process of becoming a bartender and moving through bartending um was not common or not not what's traditional but I'm really lucky because I learned a lot about how to not just bartend but how to run a bar you uh it's funny you'll you'll talk to people and once you own a bar, I hate to say this because when I was, before I owned a bar, I was like, no, I know what it means to own a bar. You don't know what it means to own a bar until you own a bar. It's the, I mean, there's just a certain level of things that, and anxiety and all sorts of stuff. But um, I, I think that I was really fortunate because I, I did have a really good idea of what it meant to own a bar because I spent so much time doing things that people you know, traditionally think aren't very glamorous or cool or sexy or fun, but those are the things that you have to do when you own a bar. It was like, you know, from Ravi, it was like, okay, how, how do I build out a bar that looks incredible for as little money as possible? How do I, you know, scale operations for multiple venues? How do I compare vendors for things? Like how do I, there's so many things that you don't even think about. And then you're opening a bar and it's like, holy shit, I have to like, consider all these you know you have this little to-do list that balloons into a novel 
you, you said it to me as you can't fly people in and you can't take your team everywhere, so you Skype with uh, yeah. with people. Mm -hmm. We I'm Skype. Go, I'm, I'm going to do one and talk about bitters and Amaro. Yeah, and it's it's cool. I, I didn't think anyone would say yes to it, and all everyone says yes, which is incredible. I'm really rich in these really good friendships and mentors and people that are willing to speak to me and my staff, but it's really good for them because I think a lot of people leave places because they're like, I'm not learning anything anymore. Right. And, or you, you know, you learn a bunch in your employee training and then you never learn anything. Or they talk about how they have all these plans for staff meetings and then they never really follow through, follow through with it. And it, it is challenging. There's some days where we don't necessarily, sometimes we won't do an educational series. Like it might be that we have such a small staff that if someone's not able to come in on a Monday, it's like, it's not fair. Like when you call in, I want to make sure that everyone is able to experience that. Um, but in general, we do do that. And then after the education, we do two hours of team building. So that could be volunteering. That could be literally going to, I mean, our default is we'll go to this uh, lovely local bar called Lou's and we'll just order some food and kind of hang out and do some sort of staff bonding stuff. But we'll do other things too. Like we'll go rock climbing or bowling or have someone come in and talk to them about something else. Or we'll do like an exercise class together. And I think that sort of team and community building is something that isn't always done also. And I think at a lot of places I worked, I felt I've worked at places where I felt like all my coworkers hung out without me and I felt like I wasn't part of the team and um, whether or not that's true or the social anxiety talking, but I wanted to make sure that the whole staff felt like at least for a couple hours a week, they were all together doing something and getting to spend time together. So that's I think it's outrageous too. and, and you know, commendable. I, I think you're, you're really, you're cutting edge right now. I, I mentioned this to to Claudia last thing. night when I saw her. Uh, Claudia's my mother. Yes, She's very I, cool. She goes to more I, bars than I do. I said I was very proud of you for, for doing all those things and implementing that kind of stuff. It makes yeah. me a little bit, um, uh, first of all, jealous that I didn't maybe work for someone who uh, does something like that and, and makes me a little bit uh, embarrassed that I'm, I need to get on my, my game and, and up my game a little bit. Well, hopefully... So that I can do these things for my staff. I mean, we have brands come around, but we don't have it scheduled every Monday. Yeah. It's not like, a, you know... I think when you when you do that, you you still trust in your team and and well, you're, bu and you're building lot. their and you're building their skill set yeah. so that they uh, are better employees for you, but also better employable by other yeah. people in the future if you're investing in them. Yeah, I think my greatest fear is that they they'll all like decide they hate me and leave. But I think we we're really lucky to have them. But we also hopefully give them a lot of reasons to want to continue to work with us. And so I think that maybe that is what drives me a little bit. Like I feel. I get anxiety that they're gonna, you know, want to go somewhere else. So it's like, what are all the things we can give them to make them want to stay? And then another fun thing is we took them to New York, and that's how you met all of them. So I did, and I think this is pretty fascinating. <laughs> give, give me, give me, and a listener kind of a rundown on what you did. Your staff is pretty small. How many people? Um, for this trip, we took four of them because uh, normally we have five, but it was when that one person had just given notice, and they were gonna kind of start transitioning. So we took four of them to New York. And so my, you and, you and Mud, me and Mud, and, and then and a team of four. And a team of four, and uh, my my mother lives here. She has a lovely house, and Claudia. so Claudia. So she wasn't she wasn't here when we took them, which was sad because they call her grandmother and they love her. But there was room oh, I bet for she, loves that. she. I think she does. Uh, <laughs> there was room for all of them to stay at the house, and the flights were pretty cheap. And we took them to as the most bars and restaurants. We, we did ask them. We, we asked them if they wanted to go to just a few places and take their time or if they want to see as many bars and restaurants as possible. And it was a unanimous decision that they wanted to go to all these different places. So we had a kind of intense looking schedule, but we actually I added... I have a photograph of your yeah, itinerary. I'm going to post it on the was, show notes. Yeah, it was... Um, 
a lot, but it really wasn't a lot. We actually we added more places. Did I tell you that? We, we ended up taking them to even more places, yeah. Uh, it was really cool. They, they loved it, and, you know, they really hit, like, greatest hits all the way to deep cuts of, you know, New York City nightlife. And what I love about life. it when you go back and look at that itinerary is that you also peppered in there you know things that you just mentioned. You said you took the staff. You take the staff uh, uh, bowling or rock climbing. So even when you came to New York, yeah, on a very we did not visit, not booze things as well. Yeah, you still went to um, still went to like a couple of museums, parks and, and museums. Parks. Yeah. yeah, it was well. It was we wanted them to experience a lot, and at the same time, it's the same same reason why for bonding, for example, we don't just take them to drinks or something all the time. Like we'll still occasionally do it. We'll get like beers and pizza, but. We wanted to make sure that we were giving them fun bonding activities that didn't involve alcohol at all. Right. Because I think in this industry, so many things are like, let's go get trashed. And, or, you know, not it's not the goal maybe, but it's like, oh, let's go get drinks. Let's go, like, whatever and drinks or drinking in this or drinks in the park. Or, sure. And we wanted to, I mean, there's nobody on the staff. I drink the least out of everyone on the staff probably. But we wanted to give them opportunities for a different kind of staff bonding. Incredible stuff. What um, what do you think is next for Lauren Newman? I don't know. I was just thinking my 30th birthday is, uh, yeah, I'm 29. Um, Jesus. And my 30th birthday is coming. Do you feel old yet? Just a bit. <laughs> old, yeah. We met when I was 22. <laughs> um, but my 30th birthday is coming up, and I was telling my mom, I feel like I'm having this almost existential crisis because it's like, where, where do you go from here? <laughs> I feel like I've, you know, I had these goals and I feel like I've, I hit them all at a really pretty young age. So, um, time to make new goals. <laughs> yeah, it's time to sit down and make a new list. I think, uh, bar number two, I would love to have. I think Robbie definitely taught me that scaling is how you make money in this industry. You don't make yeah. money with one bar, you make money with five or 10 or 15. Um, you also tear your hair up more and go gray faster, but that's okay. So you don't shun the devil with your rock and roll Want more of the Speakeasy? Follow us and ask questions on Instagram at Speakeasy Podcast or on Twitter at Speakeasy Radio. You can find Damon at Damon Bolte and you can find me at Creative Drunk on all platforms. Take a moment to write us a review on Apple Podcasts or your favorite platform and give us a star rating, five if possible. If you're visiting New York City or a resident, stop by the studio and hang out with us during an episode. Reach out beforehand to make sure we'll be here. We'd love to see you. And please support our show by visiting heritageradionetwork.org and clicking on the beating heart to donate. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.